Hey, all, we need your help. We're hoping to raise $10,000 over the next few months to help cover the costs of a few current and upcoming projects. These include, but are not limited to, a complete redesign of our logo and design work for merchandise with our soon-to-be-announced store. Your donations will also be tax-deductible as we've just turned in the paperwork towards becoming an official nonprofit. Any amount is immensely helpful and we'll personally email each donor a thank you. Absolutely everything we do on this show is to make sure the gospel is heard throughout the world and the barrier of entry into confessional reform theology is as low as possible. So go to our show notes and click the link that says donor box at the top of the page and donate. Now on with the show. Typically, I, I find in discussions of this, um, almost everybody goes to uh, who the magistrate is and, and how the magistrate rules. Yeah. Uh, without asking this question of how Christ rules. Exactly. <laughs> right? I, I think that is the more fundamental question. How does Christ rule? How does Christ rule and reign? And, and this truly was uh, the central defining point of the reformed orthodox as they um, articulated their doctrine of the of the twofold kingdom of christ welcome to the guilt grace gratitude podcast a show devoted to bridging the gap to the historic reformed christian faith listen in as two friends a layman, Nick, and a pastor, Peter, discuss core doctrines of our confessional traditions with seminary and college professors, seasoned pastors, and more. These seasonal episodes exist to reach those outside the church, those in the pews, behind pulpits, and in the academy with rich truths of Reformed theology, and remind ourselves weekly how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, sponsored by Logos Bible Software, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. Today, we're on a Season 6 Introduction to Reformed Theology episode. We're going to be talking about the civil magistrate today, and our guest is Jonathan Beakey. So Peter will further introduce him here in a moment, but if you go to our show notes, for season six, we're dedicating all our guests. All our guests are from uh, affiliated in some way, shape, or form to Westminster Seminary, California. So there'll be a link and some additional information about that seminary. And uh, if you need to find a local confessional church near your area, there's a link to, uh, for a local church finder for some reformed denominations to choose from. And then just basic connection uh, information about how to find our show, communicate with Peter or myself. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram. These shows are also on YouTube, so you can subscribe to us there. And then obviously we have some Bridge Builder sponsors you guys, uh, we want to make sure you're familiar with. Uh, Westminster Seminary in California, Logos Bible Software, and others. And so please check those out and you'll hear some words from some of our sponsors throughout the show. And so today is going to be talking about the civil magistrate, and we're kind of gearing towards the last third of the season. So 
we will uh, jump here into this conversation and I'll let Peter further introduce Jonathan Beakey mm-hmm. today. Yeah, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Jonathan Beakey, who's academic dean and associate professor of historical theology at Church and Reformed Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Got his PhD from the University of Groningen in 2019. I hope I said that right. Focused on the twofold kingdom of Christ and Reformed Orthodoxy, which is part of the reason why we have him on for this. He wrote a book on this as well, the two, the duplex regnum of Christ. He is married to Allison Beakey, and they are blessed to have four children. It's a pleasure having you on our show, Dr. Beakey. Thank you, man. Very good to be on here. Absolutely. I was so it's I always I always ask kind of a, an icebreaker question that I don't I don't send the guest before. So mm-hmm. I want you to I want you to act surprised because you are surprised. Okay. Either we know this, we're asking this. What's what's it like being the most famous Beaky of the uh, the Beaky clan? <laughs> well, I, I I always joke uh, um, that there is uh, Doctor Beaky the Greater and Doctor Beaky the Lesser, and uh, <laughs> yeah. that that I'm the latter there, so the the this, lesser. You know, there's always historically there are many examples true. of that. This is true. And like so, plenty uh, plenty the elder and plenty the younger. There you go. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, yeah. So just just by curious, do you ever get mistaken for Joel Beaky? I have one time, one time, and uh, um, you know th- that's it. Most most often, I'm confused as the son of uh, Dr. Joel Beaky, uh, uh, but okay. I'm not. I'm a nephew of him. Yeah, gotcha. um, I'm always constantly living in his shadow, and that's fine. <laughs> That's that's my plight. There you go. Life. Well, today today he's living in your shadow because he's you're uh you're Jonathan Beaky, who uh, Joel Beaky's nephew. So it's yeah. We'll, we'll uh we're gonna we're gonna treat you as the as Jonathan Beaky the Greater. There do, you, um, do you know who that reminds me of? Is the, the the Herman and J H Bavink connection? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so you can channel your J H Bavink. That's right. that's a good point. I like that. That's a good that's a good comparison. <laughs> so. uh yeah. Beyond kind of your your bio, before we get into the meat of this, let our listeners know a little bit more about yourself. Sure. Yeah. Well, I was um, born and raised in Canada. I'm Canadian, okay. so so don't uh, hold that against me. Um, <laughs> we'll try not to. Born, yeah. I, I like hockey. I like coffee. I, I root just, for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, do you like uh, maple syrup too? Is this or bacon syrup, all that stuff? Yeah. Donuts. Count Tim Hortons. All, all the like the stereotypical Canadian things you you like. You got to right. start and, saying A in the throughout the episode. Sorry, well, exactly. Yeah. I, <laughs> I don't live in an igloo, though. That's uh, <laughs> yes, that's right. So, born and raised in in Canada, I grew up uh, there uh, in a large large family. Actually, uh, went to a university in uh, Ancaster, which is Hamilton Redeemer University. Mm-hmm. I, I mentioned that because that's where um, Al Walters uh, uh, taught. Yeah. Yep. I had a, a number of classes with him yep. who um, he, he wrote uh, Creation Regained. Yep. And so then um, very much liked history, theology, and then uh, went to Westminster Seminary in California in 2004, mm-hmm. 2006. I was I was uh, just married before that to to Allison. Um, yeah, went there, lived lived overseas for a little bit and then uh, went to uh, Philly, West, uh, went to Westminster uh, in Philly, mm-hmm. did uh, doctoral work there, did not graduate from there, went through all the coursework, but mm-hmm. then moved to the, the European model of, mm-hmm. the, of the dissertation. 
and uh, graduated from uh, Throningen. So, and you gotta, you gotta almost spit when you. When I, you I knew that. for a fact I was saying it wrong, but I couldn't. Yeah. I didn't know how to say it. <laughs> That's okay. And so, uh, um, moved back here in Grand Rapids in 2011. Uh, took up an uh, administrative position here, was able to teach a little bit, mm-hmm. and then kind of grew into my role here as academic <clears throat> dean within the past year. And so, um, yeah, last year that I've been, and then teaching uh, on this um, kind of half and half. So gotcha. half administrative and then half uh, teaching. So f- have four children. Um, I serve as an elder in the uh, Orthodox Presbyterian Church uh, nice. here in town in Redeemer, uh, uh, OPC. Mm-hmm. I've been doing that for, oh boy, 12 years now. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, that's awesome. a little bit about myself. There we go. And so this this will lead me bridging into my next question. I'm curious, knowing that your your uh, uncle is so like obviously integral to Puritan, how'd you end up at Westminster? Yeah, that was a, a, good, a good question. Um, that was before the uh, Puritan had an MA program. Okay. Um, they, they began in 1995, but it was it was a much smaller seminary. They only had, I believe, that they only had the MDiv uh, degree. I did not feel really drawn to pastoral ministry. I felt more inclined to teaching. Yeah. Um, that was that was really my my calling and I, I loved historical theology so um or theology and history and, and that sure. mix and so i looked for uh, different reformed seminaries that offered an ma specifically in uh historical theology and naturally was drawn to uh, westminster in california yeah yeah that's yeah that's they're they're known for their ht degree you get the thesis right. you get all that fun stuff seminar yep. style classes and um, yeah. the most one of those rigorous degrees you can possibly enroll in. Let's uh, yeah I, yeah, I feel sorry for you after having got two years of the HT pro. It's a fantastic program, but I've heard it yeah. is brutal. No, it was it was thoroughly enjoyable. I had uh, Dr. Clark and and Horton and Van Drunen for a number of classes. Thoroughly enjoyed each one. Uh, grew so much. It was it was extremely foundational for me. Yeah. Even even having grown up in a in a reformed uh, church and family, a godly yeah. family, um, yet this really shaped my understanding of reformed theology, uh, confessional commitment. So I I thoroughly enjoyed it uh, and grew by leaps and bounds. Yep. Awesome. So I'm assuming people inquire for Puritans, like you should just go to Westminster. Just it's right. a, <laughs> it's a, it's, a, it's a superior education. That's that's what you do, right? We we I I count us as partners in the gospel. So not, <laughs> yeah. there's no competition here. No, totally. Yeah. No, I'm just yes. I'm, I'm I'm joking with you. So it's uh, you've already kind of answered two of the questions. So how'd you find it? So you're just looking for an MA in HD. <laughs> what was your education yeah. like? And that was um, it was a foundational. So how has it prepared you for both your doctoral work and the position you have today? Yeah, definitely. A, as I said, a great foundation. Uh, for my doctoral work. Uh, I felt very prepared. I was glad that I did the additional two years at at Westminster in Philly. Mm -hmm. In fact, even before that, I did one semester here at at, uh, Puritan Reform. So I can can say I had an eclectic (laughs) uh, collection of Reform seminaries, at least least three of them. Uh, But yes, it it was extremely foundational for me. 
I often refer to, you know, Dr. Clark's uh, historical theology type classes, even yep. in my own teaching, uh, the methodology that I, that I was taught there was extremely uh, important for my own discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, even even teaching me how to how to write, uh, you know, how to better myself as a writer, as a communicator. Oh yeah, yep. uh, so many things that I that I learned and and am able to implement now. Awesome, yeah. Before before next kind of first foundational question for this, um, what was your thesis on in your HD program? Was it was it similar to what you did for your doctoral? No, uh, no, it was different. It was on William Ames. Okay. And the nature of justifying faith. Uh, huh. So it's asking the question of where's the seat of, of faith and uh, whether it's in the will or, or the intellect. Um, but yeah, it was on, it was on William Ames. Awesome. Yeah. For those who are listening, the Westminster HT program has a robust thesis that you have to write, which uh, I think it brings a lot of people to that doctoral programs. They've already done a ton of research. They have a big um, thesis they, they can send. They don't have it in the MDiv or the other two MAs, but they do have it in the HT. You might be able to like finagle it into the programs, but it's built into the HT program. So a lot of people who want to go into historical theology or history or theological um, doctoral programs will do the HT, which is why Dr. Beaky did it. Yeah. yeah. And, and even that, that practice of uh, writing a larger work, yeah, like 150 um, pages or so, whatever it is. Yeah. Yep, and so it, it it gives you great practice. Uh, it's a it's another I I say it's it's another animal than a than a term paper. Oh yeah, oh yeah, very uh, to different. To try to make a, sus- a sustained argument, coherent argument, um, over a longer project is is much harder. Yeah, and so yes, it was it was very good um, practice for me. Yeah, awesome. And as a reminder, uh, yeah, it's always great to learn the background of our guests and and how you are affiliated with West Cal. So that's good. And then we're going to go into the meat of this conversation. Again, it's the civil magistrate. So you guys can understand a little bit why with his background, why he's appropriate for this conversation. And so we just usually we like to start with some definitions and groundwork, foundational stuff, so we can get the audience up to speed with what we're talking about. So we're not halfway through the episode and everyone's just kind of lost. So uh, the first foundational question is um, we like the beginning, obviously with definitions uh, work throughout the episode. And we're aware of two general groups listening Christians who have developed the doctrine of the magistrate in the church and Christians who do not. Uh, though there's certainly a continuum present in those listening, could you help define what our confessions are talking about with the civil magistrate? Yeah, good. That's a that's a great question. That's a good place to to start to to get some um, groundwork and and definitions laid, especially a, a confessional a commitment to that. Um, I think one. One place to to look at, of course, is is uh, Westminster Confession, chapter twenty three, yeah. right? Uh, the which has created a, a, a lot of debate uh, on, <laughs> yeah. on that particular. You're saying um, there's debate on on the civil magistrate in the church? I, I'd just, never heard of this. Just a tad, just a just a tad. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, but it's it definitely it's a it's a good chapter to look at. Yeah, I think um, you know a lot of contention is on. Um, you know, Westminster uh, chapter 23, three, mm-hmm. 
But um, prior to that, um, you know, you don't want to skip over uh, section one and two. Um, so those those are those are very important foundational questions that get at you know your question here or sections that get at your question here, uh, defining who the magistrate is. Yeah. So number one, uh, they begin that. I mean, I'm just reading God, the Supreme Lord and King of all the world, uh, both ordained civil magistrates to be what? To be under him and over the people. So I think, uh, you know, even beginning there, uh, our the divines begin there in, in a, an appropriate way to understand that the magistrate is first and foremost under God, mm-hmm. uh, ordained by God to be under him. Uh, echoing, you know, the language of Romans 13 mm-hmm. to be as as a, um, a minister of God or servant of God. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think that's just basic reformed uh, theology to, yep. to understand that the civil magist- magistrate is ordained, appointed by God to be under him ruling as a representative on yeah. his behalf. Yeah, regardless of whatever camp you come from or tribe, like everyone's everyone's got to believe this. Exactly. Yeah. And so echo, echoing that language of Romans 13 under God and then over over uh, all people. And it's not just a, a select number of people. It's not, um, you know, uh, the heathen. It's not the church. It's over all people. Uh, God in his wisdom has uh, granted civil authorities to to rule over all people. And then only then does it get into um, the why and then the how. Right. So you, you even see even in uh, chapter 23, this very logical ordering as the divines uh, worked through um, who the magistrate is, the duties of the magistrate. So why is the magistrate there? Um, number one, the ultimate goal is for God's glory. Mm-hmm. Um, right. It, it talks about um, to this end uh, hath armed him with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of evildoers. Uh, so, oh, sorry, before that, for his own glory and the public good. Uh, the ultimate end of the magistrate is for God's glory. Um, the penultimate good, you might say, uh, is is for the good of the public good of of all people. And so, th- and for this reason, uh, God has given him the 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 sword you might say, and that also has a, a dual purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, for He bear, bears the sword for a dual purpose, defense and encouragement on one side, and then punishment of evil on the other side. Mm. Um, so that, I think, is the, you know, again, whatever side you come on, uh, as Peter said, right, you might you might differ in, in, in the, the, um, the how of this. Yeah. But but that's the sort of basic starting point that I think is is uh, very very helpful to get at the, at the beginning. Yeah, real quick, and you, we you we emailed about this before, and I think this is a good point to put it in before next next question. Is you wrote a book, and <clears throat> my assumption it's based off of your dissertation, the Duplex Regnum Christi, so yeah. that the twofold kingdom of Christ, the, the mediated kingdom. If, if you can describe maybe what that has to do with this, if if tangentially, how how Christ rules both realms um, of his kingdom yeah good that's that's it's a big question right it's uh, that that is truly what I wrote on as my as my dissertation uh, on the twofold kingdom of Christ um typically I I find in discussions of this 
uh, almost everybody goes to uh, who the magistrate is and and how the magistrate rules. Yeah. Uh, without asking this question of how Christ rules. <laughs> exactly. Right? I, I think that is the more fundamental question. How does Christ rule? How does Christ rule and reign? And, and this truly was uh, the central defining point of the Reformed Orthodox as they um, articulated their doctrine of the, of the twofold kingdom of Christ. Now, you might, you might notice I'm using a little bit different language than uh, two kingdoms mm -hmm. distinction or two kingdoms um, um, I'm not going to say theology. I know Dr. Van Drunen does not. Yeah, he's not a fan of that. that. He likes doctrine. Uh, yeah, it's not. It's it's a doctrine. It's not a a, a, a theology, theology all, all yeah. on its own. Yeah. But I don't. Um, for for this particular reason, I think uh, twofold kingdom more closely matches the language of the Reformed Orthodox. Hmm. Um, you might notice in the in that descriptor, there's a singularity given. Uh, it's it's Christ has one kingdom, mm -hmm. but he rules in a twofold way. Yeah, uh, that that I think cl more closely matches uh, the language of the Reformed Orthodox. So we're not talking about two separate kingdoms, as sure. in, you know, they're they're very Completely divorced distinct. from each other. Yeah. But that there is one kingdom that he rules in, in a twofold way now. What are those? What is what's what's that twofold way? Uh, the Reformed Orthodox most often distinguish between an essential kingdom that Christ has and a mediatorial kingdom that mm -hmm. He has. Uh, the essential kingdom He has that's equal with the Father and and the Holy Spirit that's essential to Him as Logos, as second person of the Trinity. But there's a mediatorial kingdom that He has and that He rules as God Man. Mm -hmm. That's given to him as mediator. Um, the one, the essential kingdom is is over all people, over all things. Uh, but so too is the mediatorial kingdom. But it does have a different purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, its purpose is for redemption and and for his church. Mm -hmm. um, now, how does this relate to the the civil magistrate? Um, he, Christ has representative rulers that operate on his behalf. Um, in the essential kingdom, it's the, it's it's more the civil magistrate that comes mm -hmm. to the fore mm -hmm. in 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 the essential kingdom, whereas in the mediatorial kingdom, coming to the fore are uh, those officers of the church, uh, particularly elders uh, within the church that that have authority uh, relegated to them or uh, delegated to them on behalf of Christ as mediator. Gotcha. Mm. That yeah. makes sense. Okay. That's really helpful. Yeah. Okay. And maybe for my next question, uh, just trying to reflect on what I'm hearing too for further definitions and things like that, because people still might be might be new to the, even the term civil magistrate. Um, hmm. Yeah, and like an people old term that are, for something. Yeah, like what yeah. earth are you talking about? Especially sure. if you're not a Christian or not really studying reformed doctrine stuff this might be kind it's of kind, it still kind of sounds churchy civil magistrate yeah so with yeah. civil magistrate um what it sounds like is you know more governmental institutions um they carry the sword and the civil magistrate does not equal the church and and it it's it it even though that it's even though it's ordained by god the purpose isn't to share the gospel right 
Okay. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, so a civil magistrate is a is a blanket term you might say for any uh, position of authority in the civil arm or civil realm. Um, you know. So, depending on so that that has a, a governance or government has a, a multiple forms. You know, you mm -hmm. can have a, a monarchy, a, a democracy. You know, various forms of it. So it could be the king. Uh, it could be other civil leaders uh, within that realm that legislate, uh, give you know civil ordinances and make laws uh, for the public society, and then have the ability ability to enforce those laws uh, mm -hmm. with with uh, you know coercion and and, and so punishment <laughs> yeah. if yep. if that does not happen. Yeah, um, that obviously pastors do not have that. No, right? um, <laughs> no, we, we should not have that. Yeah, absolutely. Right, we, right. We we make the distinction in the reform that that uh, pastors, their authority that's granted to them, is uh, only ministerial and declarative. Correct. Uh, yeah. There, there is no punitive arm, no. you might say, in the church. Yeah, maybe a helpful so, example is yeah, somebody commits adultery in the church, like or somebody kills somebody else. We're not the ones meeting out the punishment for it. Sure, we have ecclesiastical discipline, but then right. we we let the authorities know, hey, this happened. We don't take care of it all of ourselves. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So yeah. that distinction, and and again, I think that distinction has its foundation um, because most most often people will immediately go to that. But I think as as what I've found is that distinction is grounded in. Uh, Jesus Christ and and mm -hmm. how Christ rules and reigns, whether he reigns as Logos mm -hmm. or whether he rules as as God Man. Um, and again, it's it's comprehensive, comprehensive. It's over all things, and that's why it's a, a singular kingdom. But there's a different mode mm -hmm. by which he he rules. As you probably know, we talk a lot about Westminster Seminary, California, on here. I can't even begin to tell you the impact this institution has had on my faith, my family, and the ministry the Lord has entrusted me with. If you feel called to serve the church and want the most rigorous training for gospel ministry around, consider coming to Westminster Seminary, California, a confessionally reformed institution in sunny San Diego that offers master's degrees in biblical and theological studies, historical theology, and divinity. Westminster's approach to ministry education emphasizes a mastery of the original biblical languages, maintaining a small student-to-professor ratio, a laser focus on face-to-face -face education coupled with an understanding of the importance of having pastor scholars with decades of ministry experience train the next generation of servant leaders for the Church of Jesus Christ. If this interests you, and I hope it does, Call Westminster today at 888-480-8474 to talk to admissions counselor or visit www.wscal.edu. Again, call Westminster Seminary California today at 888-480-8474 or log on to www.wscal.edu, which will all be available in our show notes. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, his gospel, and his church. That's helpful. Yeah, that distinction is important because if we 
a lot of bad things could happen if you hand the church the sword or you have the civil magistrate be in charge of doing what the church is supposed to do, which is sharing the gospel. And so um, that's not to say people in the civil magistrate as individuals can be Christian. Absolutely. We oh, want yeah, to make totally. sure as many people as possible in all different types of vocations are Christian. Um, but doesn't mean that be- it doesn't mean because of their role in the civil magistrate, they are pushing the gospel with the sword. And yeah. you don't want to hand a pastor the sword. <laughs> <A> sword. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, those distinctions are important because actually, as I'm going into this question, it's it's starting to make the fine line between what a theocracy is and not. So the so and so let's go back to where we know theocracy is clear in the scripture, and everyone is starting to tie this to the Mosaic Law. So. So the civil modern the modern civil magistrate and the Mosaic law have a complicated relationship. Some people don't know how it can be related and not. As you and our listeners well know, how does the Old Testament, in particular, the Mosaic institution and later development of the theocracy in Israel talk about government? Yeah, good. Um, so yes, as we as we look at the the Old Testament, we of course see uh, God in instituting in uh, the Mosaic economy uh, certain offices to to lead his his people. Um, you know, you you have to go to uh, Deuteronomy 17, mm-hmm. uh, for instance, and you see God instituting yeah. the office of the king uh, to to rule his people. So. Um, you know the the Israelites, uh, the Old Testament Israelites were not to were to look for a, a godly ruler, a, a godly king. Um, often it's it's interpreted wrongly uh, when it's when it's thought that they were looking for a king. Um, it's it's in, it's interpreted as though they are denying God's rule and and God's reign. Um, but but the key there is for what type of king they were to look for. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the often they were looking for kings like all the nations around them, uh, rather than the godly, appo- uh, the appointed king that was to lead God's people. And so they were to look for a, a king. And, and so Deuteronomy 17 spells out all of those stipulations, uh, what the what the magistrate and, and ruler should look like. He should not, you know, for instance, accumulate a lot of uh, wealth to himself. He should not accumulate a, a lot of uh, horses and wives to mm-hmm. himself. Uh, you you start listing all of these, and which of course so they, the kings never did. They obeyed that exactly, perfectly. exactly. I mean, you you look at Solomon, for example, and every instance of Solomon, he he denied exactly what uh, Deuteronomy seventeen uh, was talking about. And so, um, all you know, they they were to find in all of these kings uh, antitypes of the great king uh, who perfectly fulfilled. Deuteronomy 17, you might say. Um, but going back to your question about the, about the theocracy, so this was instituted in a particular time, a particular context that, that we have to understand. Um, this was in a particular stage in redemptive history when God's people, uh, the, the church, you might say, and the state were, were a mixed community and, and one community. There was not this uh, distinct division between the nation as as a as a, a political entity and the church as as a as a as a distinct community. 
they were they were joined, you might say. There was a mixture of the two. And so um, I think you have to understand that as a as a specific place or time in redemptive history where where this uh, took place. And so you have to you can't simply take how the kings ruled then and say, now I'm going to implement this in our our current context uh, because that's it's kind of doing a a hermeneutical jump that's that's unwarranted. Yeah. Right. Um, so. That's that's helpful. That that leads me to this to this next question, and um, so somewhat related to your book, and kind of a mixture of your book and, and this topic. And like we said, your your book Duplex Regnum Christi. We'll put a link in the show notes to this book as well. Uh, deals with these issues and more, particularly situated like you talked about in the Reformation. Uh, and there's there's a wide spectrum understanding um, from the wide spectrum of understanding from the first generation of reformers. Uh, in the early 1500s to high orthodoxy to the reforms classics like early 1500s late 1600s or late 1600s maybe early 1700s ish um, but in general when, when we're looking at how christ rules his his duplex kingdom is his two kingdoms um what are some of the ways of grouping the reformers according to the understanding of how the magistrate of the government interacted with god's law yeah, good. Good. Um, yeah, that that's a it's a hard question. I, I'm gonna first uh <laughs> yeah. say I'm I'm uh not a huge fan of always uh, the generalizations. Sure, yeah. They they often uh fail. Yeah. Um I my um lifelong thesis is that it's much easier to be a grouper uh, or a lumper rather than a splitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but but it's often more accurate to history to be a splitter than a lumper. Um, sure, so yeah, that makes sense. Yep. Right. So history is often messier than than, than what yeah. we make it out to be. Yeah. And so um, I think it's much more helpful to look at the the concrete examples um, mm -hmm. rather than to make large yeah. generalizations. Yep. Um, with that caveat in, in mind, <laughs> um, I think we we first understand that. That the magic we, we talk about the magisterial reformers, yeah, right as a as a category. What do we mean when we talk about the magisterial reformers? Um, and by that we we have this larger category of um, you know Calvinist uh, uh, Genevan reformers, as well as uh, Luther, as well as Anglican, uh, right? And so when we're talking about magisterial reformers, we're we're Going back to our, you know, your first question when we talked about uh, defining who the civil magistrate is, these were reformers who saw an appropriate and and God ordained use of the civil magistrate, mm -hmm. and, and and an appropriate use mm -hmm. of the magistrate to um, protect religion, to um, you know, to make space for uh, religious practice and and mm -hmm. exercises to to um, yeah, to to allow for for that space for for Christianity to flourish. So we're, we're talking about the magisterial reformers. Um, that differs, you might say, as a general group and category from, let's say, the the radical uh, reformers, or or you might say, the Anabaptists. Yeah. Um, so so they're they're sort of uh, distinguishing themselves from this the radical Reformation or the Anabaptists. Which uh, rejected the the God ordained use and appointment of civil authority, 
And so that that's you know one distinction that we can make on on the mm -hmm. one hand. Um, they are also, in terms of a general group, these magisterial reformers are distinguishing themselves from the whole medieval tradition, uh, which which was more appropriating the the two swords, the Galatian two uh, two swords theory, hmm. where it was um, almost that the church is delegating authority to the the, the civil arm, hmm. and so. Um, it's almost you have, um, you know, the, the two swords were given to the church, and the, then it's the church that mm. hands over one mm. sword to the civil magistrate and holds the other spiritual sword. Mm. Um, that the, the magisterial reformers said, no, no, that's not. It's not a hierarchical thing where God gives both swords to the church, and then it's up to the church to give uh, a, a civil sword to to the magistrate. Um, no, both are under God. Both are appointed by directly by God, but uh, operate and rule in in different uh, ways. So those would be the kind of two um, extremes that the magisterial reformers are are correcting. Both those who deny any use of the civil magistrate, and then also the more uh, Roman Catholic view of. Uh, that the church appoints or, or delegates authority to, to the civil realm. Uh, then within the magisterial reformers, you might have, you know, slight differences as well between the Lutheran reformers, uh, the Swiss reformers, mm -hmm. and, a, and a different context as well, and even a, a shade of difference between um, Geneva as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, different contexts of how it played out. The English Reformation played out very differently than, uh, than a Swiss context, than even in a Lutheran context. Uh, for example, Luther, you know, relied on, uh, you know, his protector, a civil protector. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was very instrumental in a, in a Lutheran Reformation. Um, so yeah, you have shades of difference, but those, those, that's how I would see the, the major um, breakdown of, of the differences. That's extremely helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And that leads into this pretty well. Um, as we've noted earlier, the two most pertinent uh, reformed confessions relating to this would be Belgic Confession 36 and Westminster Confession of Faith 23. We'll put those in the, our show notes, a uh, link to those. Um, both those have started a fair share of debates in reform circles concerning the role of the magistrate and the church, as we've already kind of talked about. Can you walk us through how these texts have, have been interacted with a little bit more, especially in the original context? which is always important to understand the original context. Um, the Belgic Confession was written in response to the Roman Catholic governmental and ecclesiastical persecution of the Reformed Church, and the Westminster Confession of Faith 23 was written under the oversight of the English Parliament. And so it kind of bears asking also what happens if the government is overstepping its role in forcing citizens to do unbiblical things and and mm -hmm. allowing the church to be attacked. How is the how's the church know? Okay, this is time to, as Christians, push back. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, um, again, relating the the history of both documents is uh, would take well beyond this uh, yeah. show, and uh, I mean beyond uh, large volumes dedicated to it. But you're right in in that there are significant differences in the in the context within which both documents were written uh 1561 
uh, Guido Debray was was largely the author of of this particular uh, document and and um, the the Belgian Confession, and he's writing in the context of, as you say, a, a persecution. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, he's he's writing in the context of where he's trying to delineate himself and his, his reformed views uh, in opposition to the Anabaptists, mm-hmm. right? And so he's not wanting um, Charles V and, and Philip II to sort of group him and his followers mm-hmm. and the churches under the cross in the same group as the radical Anabaptists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he's really trying to distinguish um, himself and in terms of that he's recognizing the authority of the civil of the civil magistrate, and yet holding them to account for uh, their their proper role. And so, uh, yes, it's written in the face of, of persecution. In fact, uh, I think the the original copy was thrown over. If if it might it might be debated, um, but it was thrown over the over the walls. Uh, Guido Debray is writing this, and he attaches with it an original letter. Um, and he throws this document with a letter over over the walls uh, in which and in this letter that's attached to it, he pleads for this end to uh, persecution of the of the reform. Mm-hmm. So it's really, you know, in that in that vibrant context of uh, defend. It's almost an apologetic mm-hmm. right for himself and, and a call for the end of persecution, but also a call for the magistrate to to uh, do what God has ordained that magistrate to do. Um, so he's really uh, holding him accountable to that. Well, if fast forward um, nearly 100 years later to the Westminster Confession, 1640s, that's a very different context, right? Very different. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it's more of an established yeah. context where, where they have, uh, uh, yes, political upheaval happened, um, you know, the regicide happens, the long parliament is instated, and uh, they, they have much more of an established position uh, to write from. But yeah, so establishing the context is, is very important. What was the second question? Sorry. It was... yeah, maybe uh, to help out the question mm-hmm. um, a little bit, ha- w- with knowing some of this original context, um, how should we view? Because I think sometimes when we Americans look at these these documents, we'll look at this through kind of our perspective, how we think this should work. But how does how does it how does understanding this context maybe help us a little bit engage with these documents? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. So yeah, it's it's um, both of these documents in their in their uh, sections on the civil magistrate underwent uh, significant revisions. Yeah. As Big you time. enter yep. into the as you enter into the American context, um, surprisingly, the the Westminster Confession on on Chapter Twenty Three much earlier than the Belgian Confession. Oh, that's right. Um, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, it wasn't until the beginning of the twentieth century that that the um, Christian Reformed Church started yeah. looking at uh, uh, Article. 36 of the Belgic yep. Confession and wanting to revise it. Yep. But the Westminster Confession much earlier. I, yeah, I think it was like 17, what, late 18th century, 1790, something like that? 1788, I believe. It's some somewhere around there. Yeah. Um, late, late 1700s. So I find that interesting that the even the revision history of of both documents. Um, but yeah, what what happens in between that? 
uh, is, is uh, you know, certainly the Enlightenment and, and other things happen. So this pre-modern concept of, uh, of an established Christendom uh, is the operative realm within which, let's say, the Belgic Confession is written. Yeah. And so understanding that context is, uh, is extremely helpful for us to, to read that document in its original context. Um, yeah, so I, you know, we, we have a, a very different context in our uh, American setting. Yeah. Um, even speaking as a Canadian myself, you see, <laughs> see how I included myself there. <laughs> That's good. In, yeah. In the American context. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but a very different uh, context than let's say uh, Debray's uh, context uh, writing in 1561, uh, where where Christendom was was the established. I mean that that was the context. There, yeah. there really was no other context uh, to operate from. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, that's it's actually a, I think a, a fantastic um, transition to this, and it has to do a little bit more with both your experience and research, researching the duplex regnum, researching the twofold kingdom, uh, the relationship between the civil magistrate and the church. Maybe in your experience, what's what's been most misunderstood in favor of a you could you can call it bland or you can call it kind of church over the state or the the state is purely for the Christian church or just upholds the Christian church. Um, relatedly, how have those who've wanted a separation? And I think this tends to be what people call like the radical two kingdom, like just a complete separation. There's no relationship. Um, and maybe how, how that's gone too far. So maybe two spectrums, obviously we know there's a continuum in between these, but how have these been misunderstood? Yeah. Well, uh, uh yeah, that's, it's a good question. I, I go to uh, one of my favorite authors is, is uh, Francis Turretin, mm -hmm. and um, he often makes this comment um, in his polemical, um, in his elenctic um, ref refutation. He often distinguishes between those who uh, sin in defect and those who sin in excess. And by that, he means those who err on one extreme and those who... Uh, air on the other extreme. And and yeah. so often in any debate, you see this happening, right? Uh, those who, um, you know, go to one side, one side of the spectrum, the other side of this uh, other uh, spectrum. And then Turretin will say, but we, the Orthodox, are in the middle. Right? <laughs> yeah. So we yeah. have those who sin in defect, those who sin in excess, but we, the Reformed or Orthodox, are in the middle. Now, yeah. Of course, all of us like to think that we're in the middle, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but it, it truly is this, this balance that, that we are to seek. Uh, you know, certainly there is not, and this is why I like the language of twofold kingdom, Yeah. because uh, we don't want this, you know, radical separation of church and state. We don't want this Anabaptist approach yeah. uh, that there is not, no God-ordained uh, use for the civil magistrate. Yeah. Nor do we want a commingling of the two. Yeah. Right. So we don't want this radical separation. Nor nor do we want a, a commingling. Um, the analogy might you might say is uh, the the natures of Christ. Hmm. Um, you know the the human and the divine. We don't we don't seek a radical separation of the two. Nor do we so mingle them that there is no distinction. And so I I think. Um, you know, of course, you you got to look at the concretes of, of how this works out. But in principle, that's what we want. 
we want a very distinct uh, nature of the church. We, mm -hmm. we talked about the, the church's authority as, mm -hmm. as declarative and ministerial um, and for a particular purpose of, uh, of redemption and salvation, right? And so what does that look like in the church? It, it has to maintain its unique identity and authority and message, mm -hmm. right? And and uh, and how that's given through word and sacrament and and God ordained uh, officers for that, uh, distinct from the civil magistrate who has its use in it also. Uh, but it's very it's it's different mm -hmm. than the church's uh, use, right? Um, so having that balance and mm -hmm. and um, is is something that that we must seek for. Quick little plug for our own podcast here. If you are an individual and you want to help donate for this work, you can go to our show notes, to our Patreon page, as well as our Spotify donations page. If you want to make a recurring donations, they're either $15 or $20 a month, or a single donation, you can also do that as well. Those really help us on the back end to give to this work, to keep up our website, to make sure we can pay those who help with our editing, with our software, with our merchandising, all, all those good things. If you're a potential sponsor and you want to sponsor us and, and fill out one of our ads, you can email us at guiltgracepod at gmail.com and we can talk through some of the options that we have. And we would love to work with both individuals and publishers, institutions, seminaries, whoever it may be, as we all work towards our mission of bridging the gap to reform Christian theology. Yep. Help expand our work and be a bridge builder. Yeah, maybe... Maybe I don't know if you can answer this or not, but if we if we do see too much of a commingling, maybe what's the result of that when when the church kind of becomes indistinct from the civil magistrate? And then on the opposite end, what does it kind of look like when the church is so far separate where the church has nothing to do with the civil magistrate? Mm -hmm. Civil like we have we want nothing to do with the state, anything. So maybe like a yeah. practical outworking of what those two look like. Yeah, of course. So so um you know, uh, let's say a, a radical separation, uh, there is then, you know, so what, what does that tell our, our congregants? It's, it's um, almost in, encouraging them to separate from society, that there is no use for society, or that, or that it's a, it's a separate life, <laughs> you might say. That, you know, one life in church, one life in, in like Monday to Saturday, whatever it is. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yep. So it's a life lived out here that doesn't touch or doesn't affect uh, our life of worship, and so it's it's you know almost like you're it's almost like two two people in mm -hmm. in you know one person that you can live you know in this way you know Monday through Saturday, but this way is 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 something um, extremely different. So yeah. you know that's one radical approach or outworking sure. of it. Um, whereas the opposite effect happens is if you know it's it's so uh, mingled together. That there is no unique message that the church gives. Hmm. Um, that its message is is something that is uh, simply political. Hmm. That it's simply affecting the the moral outworking of of the person, and it only uh, addresses the life here and now, the the hmm. temporal life, rather than uh, the the life to come, the eschatological life, uh, that that ultimate goal of the Christian, right? So those would be again. Mm. Those would be the extreme. Sure. Yeah. Of course, you have this large continuum. Yeah, yeah. It's not like it's 
Um, this is why going back to the comment of uh, it's so easy to generalize. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, those would be the extremes. Yep. Totally. And I think it's it's just because the extremes tend to be the loudest. The minority voices tend to be the last ones we hear. And I, th I think people think, well, I have to choose a side. Right. Either I have to be this side or I have to be that side. Versus like you said, maybe thinking yeah, a little more critically about these things, even though they're loud, it's not the only choice. There's a continuum. Yeah. 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 And um, before I go into my question that would allow you to give some modern context to how this plays out, how I've seen um, it maybe played out and how I could interpret it too, if I may, and I hope it's helpful and you agree, but, you know, for example, in the OPC church and other reformed churches in the beginning of the, uh, before the sermon starts with the prayer, the pastor guides us through, hmm. we are praying for our president. Um, whether you like him personally or not, you're really, cause we know that it's commanded is an, to, yeah, where it's an ordained office, um, under the authority of God. And sure. so we're praying for the president and we're praying for, um, protection um from all all civil magistrate people are protecting really all civilians and, and that by default is protecting us at the church physically to come to church worship not have anything bad happen we're praying for good cops we're praying for the president to rule with a sense of righteousness uh, whether we like him or not and then um at the but if the government did tell us for um some reason that we're we can't go to church anymore if the if the government said uh something anti-biblical we would push back and be like yeah well we that's where the bible gives ultimate authority where we were we will go worship we will go to church we're standing up for you know biblical authority and then um refusing to bow to other gods like we will not go against scripture if the government starts persecuting us and telling us to do unbiblical things, that's how I've kind of said, I don't know if that helps before I jump in my question on the reflection of that. Yeah, it, it, it's definitely right. I mean, um, uh, chapter 23, four, right. You're echoing that, that it's our duty uh, to, to pray for the, for those in authority over us. Uh, so there's definitely a, a confessional, um, argument for that and necessity for that for as as uh, citizens that we pray for those in uh, civil authority over us. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, if if pushed to um, do things contrary to God's word, which is our our ultimate standard and authority, um, because you you understand this, if if we understand the magistrate to be a delegated authority of God, once that authority contradicts. The ultimate authority, well, then, then it's no longer a legitimate authority. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so, um, at at that moment, we we obey God, as Peter says, rather than men. And so, um, yes, we 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 we're understanding the, the civil magistrate is not an authority in and of himself or herself. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't. The authority does not originate within them, and that's mm -hmm. why we begin with that very fundamental statement that the magistrate is under God, mm -hmm. right? And so if it's delegated authority, if that authority um, contradicts God's word, then, then we, we disobey that. And in fact, that's, it's not disobedience, it's obedience to, to the ultimate authority. 
Totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, do you have any other modern contexts how you can see our Reformed theological tradition and these confessions played out between the uh, magistrate and the church and staying faithful to our confessions? Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe to, to answer, I don't know if this fully answers your question. I'm just going to throw it out there. Yeah, please. One, one particular thing that I've often wrestled with and, and our, 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 um, those who've written our, our confessional documents have often stated this is that the, um, the care of religion is appropriate to the magistrate. So they often talked about, um, that the magistrate does have the the uh, curia religionis, the the care of religion is appropriate to him uh, or her, and and that it applies to uh, both tables of the law. Hmm. Uh, it, it, this is a common refrain. I mean, in in preparation for this, I I went back and reviewed countless individuals and uh, Reformed Orthodox theologians who upheld this that that uh, both tables of the law are appropriate for um, the civil magistrate. So one question that, that's, that's really, um, you know, is this true? Is, is this uh, uh, something that we should apply in our modern context that um, we should uphold this? I mean, this was the standard view of the 16th, 17th century that the magistrate upholds religion according to both tables of the law, the first and second table, not simply the second table, mm. as in legislating uh, morality, I mean, uh, contra uh, murder, um, theft, you know, covetousness, all, all of that, you list the all the commandments of the second table, but also worship of God. And if so, what does that look like? So I, I find that to be a, a fascinating question within mm. our within our modern context, uh, what that looks like. Absolutely. And yeah, uh, yeah. Peter's going to end the episode with a practical question, but I think it's appropriate because my wild card question <laughs> would probably not be where we want to end the conversation, but it's an honest question. And um, I think that you would answer it um, very clearly, even if it creates a category that people don't know exists when they're asking the question. But um, when we look at Romans 13, like you mentioned, the government's there for uplifting the good of all. And there is kind of a feeling of a sense of common grace element there. And then we also, um, especially as Reformed people, we really are focused on a lot of uh, eschatological understanding um, of how this is, what this is all kind of pointing to. And I think the question, if you could help maybe guide the answer with what I'm asking is um, we see that the, there is a binding of Satan. He is limited on what he can do. We already know that um, we see that in uh, Job, but we also see it in more eschatological terms as, as far as uh, Satan can only do so much and there's a binding of him. And it's, it's partly exercised ironically through the mag civil magistrate to protect all citizens, whether, uh, no, by government officials and leaders, regardless of their religion. Um, could you help reflect on that question? I think a lot of the audience may have coming into this um, because they're seeing the civil magistrate as 
not a religious foundation, but yes, um, there is an element of uh, the devil having some uh, control over some governments. Yeah, good, good question. That's a good wild card uh, question. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yes, definitely. There. When we talk about uh, again, this is why I I think it's important to consider Christ's rule and reign mm -hmm. before we look at the the magistrate's rule and reign, which is which is to be representative, um, in in a certain mode. Um, we understand that Christ Christ's rule and reign. Uh, is over all things. It's it's universal. It applies to all. It applies to, uh, uh, as Turton says, both the pious and the impious. Um, and that includes angels, good and bad, uh, both the, the devil included. So so all things are under the rule and reign of, of the risen Christ. And so... Um, he can certainly, in his providential rule and reign, he can orchestrate uh, the hearts of kings, whether 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 they're they're good or evil as well. Mm -hmm. And he does that for for the sake of his church. So there's not um, again we're not we're not radically divorcing uh, his essential and his mediatorial kingdom, um, and yet we're distinguishing the two. Uh, he he does all things for the purpose of his church. Uh, for the for the gathering and defense of his church, those who are who so he gathers his his people in uh, to his kingdom and rule, but he also defends uh, his church against the, all those who are opposed to his his church, his his people, whether that's the devil or whether that's those who act on behalf of the devil mm -hmm. uh, and those opposed to it, right? So. Mm -hmm. Um, and he and he he has promised that he will do so until he comes again. So yes, there is a an eschatological element to this that it is continued pr uh, protection um, that he has in governance uh, over all things. Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. So ending this on a kind of a practical note, but maybe more of a concluding summary note. Um, so for those who are listening, who maybe don't have the categories or, or confused, maybe um, if you can, how do I, just, if you were, if you were speaking to a Sunday school class and, and maybe using as, as few technical terms as possible, or just <laughs> defining the technical terms, describing what you, you think is, is the best way to understand Christ's twofold kingdom as obviously as it relates to the civil magistrate, um, how they operate in relationship to, um, or distinction from the church and how the church is supposed to be operating under Christ. So maybe just a summary, okay, how, how should we understand the relationship um, of Christ's role over the civil magistrate and the church? Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, it's a, it's good to always <laughs> ask for a summary and a sort of elevator speech on, on this. Um, yeah. Somebody's like, you know what? I'm just not sure about this stuff. I don't really know. Um, yeah, just explain it to me in just layman's terms, Dr. Beaky. I'm, I'm just a simple, I'm a simple guy. Right. <laughs> well, I would go to, I would go to, you know, point out various passages. Um, okay. you know, the, Matthew 28, uh, what does Jesus say in, in Matthew 28? Um, he claims that all authority has been given to him, right? Uh, you go to first Corinthians 15 when, when, uh, Christ talks about, um, him handing authority over back to the Father at the end of the age. 
uh, going back to Nick's uh, question. So um, there is, there's a scriptural, many scriptural, once you start looking for it, there's many scriptural references where the father gives authority to the son mm -hmm. and gives power and dominion to the son. So you have to ask yourself, what does that mean? What is, what is it like? Does the son not have that original to himself? Mm -hmm. I mean, does the son have to rely on the power of the authority of the of the father? And in fact, in, in the in the 17th century, uh, the Socinians, not to mm -hmm. complicate this too much, but the Socinians looked at those verses and said, aha, there's there's evidence for the, um, you know, the submission of the son to the father. The son is not divine in himself. Mm. He's not he's not co-eternal with the father. He doesn't have the same power as the father. He has mm -hmm. to he has to receive that from yeah. the father. Yeah. Well, mm. what what are what are the scriptures talking about? It's it's there that we get this distinction between the authority and power that the son has of himself that's essential to him mm. as divine, but also that power and authority that he exercises on behalf of the church. So that's that's that major mm. distinction. And then you have delegated authority that he gives to human representatives. Uh, the one being the civil magistrate and the other being the um, the elders within the church and the, and the mm. different roles that they play. That's gotcha. kind of that's kind of where I'd go um, and that those representatives have to act in accordance to um, Christ, who is that that primary ruler, and the and the the rules that he gives, mm -hmm. and so if they act contrary to that, then they should not be obeyed, uh, whether the civil magistrate or whether the elders within the church, and that discipline should then happen. Hmm. Yeah, is and, it helpful at all to summarize to think about Christ in his twofold kingdom? ruling through the magistrate in a in his creative i can't think of it like but it, like in his create like creator capacity yep and yep. then the church in his redeeming capacity that's right that's exactly right yep so the so the foundation of the magisterial role is within the created realm and order um and and so it's it, that's why it's related to that essential rule uh that he has that he has as logos Whereas uh, the elders within the church, um, a very different foundation, it's within that redempt his his role as redeemer, as mediator. Yep. Gotcha. That's and, helpful. And it's a good reminder that the reformers didn't just make this stuff up out of nowhere. They were pointing to scripture and then also really standing on the shoulders of our early church uh, fathers like Athanasius, Augustine, and Irenaeus. If you read this too, and, and Justin, Justin Martyr, where Justin he's Martyr. talking to the civil magistrate, he's like, hey, why are you persecuting us? We're living, yes. we're living good, quiet, peaceful lives. That's a good right. one too. So yeah. if if people uh, go to Athanasius' four discourses, he kicks back on that heresy of there once was a time when the sun was not. So going back to supporting that the sun is co-eternal. And then read Augustine, City of God, and then Irenaeus against heresy, and then Justin Martyr, like Peter mentioned it too. Yeah, read everything of the church fathers and you'll get it. <laughs> that's uh yeah, that's helpful. Well, um, Dr. 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 Beaky, thank you so much for coming on our show. 
Um, if you could just end it by saying um, where, where you're at for church and where people can find you at Puritan, um, some information about Puritan and some of the stuff that you do. Yep. Um, yeah. So, so again, as I said, we, I serve as academic Dean at, at Puritan Reform Seminary. It's located in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, if you are looking for a, a solid confessionally reformed seminary, uh, you of course could could visit our website or the website of Westminster <laughs> Seminary in California. Right? Yeah. Either again, I think as we talked about uh, before, we're not competitors. No, we're we're brothers uh, and laborers yep. in the gospel yep. uh, together. Um, yeah, know, one so... seminary can't get get them all, so we'll we'll leave you we'll leave you a few when uh, <laughs> we see them. <laughs> The remnants, like like Ruth gleaned <laughs> from the land, right? Thank you. Yes. Yeah, we, we won't hedge the edge of our grain grain fields to make sure that uh, the strangers and foreigners can can come pick it up. There you go. Well, we'll we'll take your scraps. That's fine. That's I'm, fine. I'm, I'm totally. I I love uh, pure to reform. I love what you guys are doing. You guys have fantastic professors. Your degree programs are um, really compelling uh, <laughs> for those who are. We're looking for a strong, reformed, um, Puritan, experiential um, education. But Dr. Yeah. Beaky, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your writing. And thank you for uh, breaking down um, some some controversial topics within the, the Christian church in a way that I, I think helps bridge some of these concepts and maybe ceases a little bit of the infighting within the reform. So thank you so yeah. much. Yeah. And again, so just one more comment. I mean, this yeah. doesn't this doesn't address... Uh, all of the particulars, right? No. There are many, many particulars. Right. And, no. yeah. and yeah. so you can get, as you said, the infighting on many of the concrete examples of that. Yeah. That was only that was only um, exacerbated through COVID, right? Yeah. As exactly. you, as you sure. might say, the role yeah. of the magistrate in yep. this. So we could get we could get caught up in many of the many of the concrete examples yep. of that. Um, but again, I, I think if anything, this might be helpful th for thinking through the more basic principles behind uh, why what the uh, civil magistrate does and why. Um, yeah, yeah. What we share more than what divides us, and sure, there are things going to be mm -hmm. to divide us. Um, but it's helpful to see some of our confessional, our scriptural, our historical foundations for for how we see the relationship. Yeah. But yeah, it goes thank you. back to how how God is expanding his kingdom and growing his church in the healthiest yeah. way possible. Totally. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Amen. So Amen. thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. All right, brothers. Thank you thank so you. much. Of course. See ya. Hope you enjoyed today's episode in our season six introduction to reform theology, where all of our guests come from Westminster Seminary, California, either current faculty or alumni who come from and graduated from Westminster and are serving institutions in churches and academies in the U.S. and all across the world. When we talk about reform theology through the lens of our confessional tradition, Westminster, the Heidelberg, Belgic, and the Cans of Door. I myself I'm a graduate of Westminster. I'm heavily influenced, obviously, by the institution and love to share this information with those who don't know this tradition as well. Yeah, and myself as a layperson, theologically interested in in Reformed theology, this has been extremely helpful this season and then the previous seasons, the last few years in the book clubs, but particularly the, the focus of this season 
whether you're a layperson or not, uh, having all the guests come from Westminster Seminary, California has been helpful. And you'll get an understanding of why that seminary has been so influential to obviously Peter, but myself. And most especially, uh, my pastor at my church is a Westminster Seminary, California graduate. Yeah, so if you guys want to find us, one of the easiest ways of helping us out is to find us on Apple or Spotify, whatever podcast catcher, but especially those two, rate and review us. And if you can share us, share an episode, share a season with your friend, that's, that's usually how we how we uh, build our, our crowd. 